We're going to spend some time in the Bible now. We study the Bible each week because we believe it speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So I invite you to open up your Bible if you have your own. If you don't have a Bible, we've got black Bibles under the chairs, and you can grab one of those. You're welcome to keep it if you don't have a Bible at home. And we're going to be on page 300. We're continuing our series that we've called Ancient Faith. So just two weeks left in this Ancient Faith series. What we've been doing is we've been looking back at Old Testament heroes of the faith, and we've been seeing how they also long for this better world. They also long for salvation, for union with God. And as we look at these ancient faith, Old Testament heroes, we see they are learning to trust in God, just like we have to learn to trust in God. And the author to Hebrews makes the argument that how much more should we run to God in faith because we have the fuller story of everything he's done for us in Jesus. And so all summer long, we've been apprenticing with these ancient heroes. This week, we're going to be in 1 Kings, 1 Kings 18 and 19. So as I said, that's 300, page 300 on the Black Bibles under the chairs. 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19, we're calling it Follow God with Elijah. Follow God with Elijah. So how many of you ever heard of Elijah, the Old Testament prophet? Some of you, okay, somewhat famous. He's one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. Um, there's this kind of crazy thing. We don't fully understand this, but when we look back in the Old Testament uh, and in the New Testament, miraculous, crazy stories of supernatural things only occur in three major seasons, if you will. Uh, We sometimes think the Bible is just full of all these miraculous, amazing things. Well, no, most of the Bible stories, most of the history stories are in a world that that you and I are used to where there's just not that many miraculous things that happen, right? But there are these seasons with Moses and Joshua, and then this season again with Elijah and Elisha, and then later on, Jesus and his apostles, right? Right? Three major seasons where God says, look at, look at these incredible, miraculous things. These are proofs. These are signs that God is still speaking to us. And so Elijah and Elisha, two different prophets that work together, they're one of these amazing, amazing series. I'd, I'd love to see it made into like a sci-fi movie someday, like these just crazy heroes, you know, miraculous stuff, fires falling from heaven and Elisha's healing stuff, uh, healing people, just all kinds of amazing stories. So as I've been doing all summer long, I want to encourage you to go back and read the stories in their entirety, because I'm not going to be able to cover every detail. Uh, This week, we're going to focus just on two chapters. And what we're going to see is that Elijah has this incredible mountaintop experience followed by this valley of depression And then he has to relearn what it means to walk with God in those ups and downs of life. And I think that's going to be really meaningful to us, right? Because our lives are usually not just one or the other. Usually usually our lives are a combination of these ups and downs, right? Um, So starting off, I wanted to think about mountaintop experiences. We use that phrase to kind of talk about just these incredible, joyful, wonderful, insightful, restful, rejuvenating experiences that we have in life sometimes. When I was 17 years old, I had gone through a really difficult year. I'd had a a friend that committed suicide and had another friend that died in a drunk driving accident, another friend uh, that died under mysterious circumstances. Uh, My dad disowned me. Um, I was having a lot of struggles just with what I had really devoted my life to at that time was being an athlete, and that was not going well for me. I had repeated injuries. That was almost like my religion at the time, and my religion was not paying off. Um, And I, I went that summer to a camp up in the mountains. I was a part of this group called Fellowship of Christian Athletes. 
Um, and so basically the coaches would get us together. And I don't remember anything that we learned in those meetings, to be honest, right? Um, y'all ever seen Charlie Brown uh, cartoons, right? Where the teacher goes, wah, 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 wah. So that's what I remember from Fellowship of Christian Athletes, okay? But there was this moment where the coaches were like, hey, we have some scholarship money and we can take you to camp in Colorado. And it's like, all right, I'm in, right? I'd never been to a fancy camp like this. I was super excited to go. We went to this camp and the Lord really worked through this amazing mountaintop experience. A few things that were different, right? Like I, I've spent most of my life here in the, in the Death Valley of Central Texas, right? And so it was amazing to me to see tall trees, never really seen that before. Um, it was amazing. Did I get an amen on that one? It was, amazing. it was amazing for me to see the mountains, right? Just the beauty and the majesty of the mountains. They were incredible. Um, and also, in addition to all that, I heard the gospel proclaimed really clearly. It, it crystallized for me. Man, God loves me. Jesus gave himself for me. And in that mountaintop experience, I committed myself fully to Jesus. I began walking with Jesus, I had to learn how to follow him down the valley after that, but God brought along others to walk with me. And so I don't know if you've had an experience like that. I had an experience like that where I had this this mountaintop high of, man, this is awesome. God is so good. I want to follow him with everything I've got. And then I had to learn to follow him in the hard times as well. And that's what we're going to see in the story of Elijah. The Elijah and Elisha stories are interesting. They take place during the reign of evil kings in the history of Israel. So Uh, Israel, God's people, they were not always faithful, right? There were some kings that were better than others. King David and King Solomon were kind of seen as high points, but honestly, King Solomon fizzled out and and ended badly. And everybody after him, it kind of got worse and worse. You know, there were some blips on the radar of people that were faithful here and there, but a lot of stories of unfaithfulness. And one particular king was named Ahab, and Ahab was really evil. His wife Jezebel was even more evil. Um, And they just did terrible things, murdered people, led Israel to worship false gods. And so that's where we're going to pick up the story is we're going to pick up the story where there's this kind of confrontation between Elijah, the true prophet of God, and Ahab and his false prophets of Baal. Baal was one of their false worship uh, groups at that time. So we're going to pick up in 1 Kings 18, and I'm going to start reading in verse 20. So Ahab's evil king, it says in verse 20, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So we have the same question that we're facing today. Who's the true God and who will you follow? The way we would say it is, if Jesus is God, follow him. If your other false gods are, are the true gods that will save you, okay, we'll go ahead and follow them. We, we're tempted by other false gods, usually not Baal worship and these fertility rites, but we're, we're tempted by the gods of money and power and success and pleasure and relationship and addiction and all these other false gods. We're tempted to follow. And Elijah said to them, just like he would say to us, who's the real God? Who's really going to save you? Figure that out and then follow him. So Elijah is laying this down. How long are you going to limp back and forth? Who's the true God? Follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves 
and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. Verse 24, and you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. All right, so they're like, okay, we'll have a contest. The prophets of Baal, the false worship, and the prophets of God. Whenever you see in your English translations, all capital L-O-R-D, that's the special name God reveals himself to his people, Yahweh, sometimes pronounced Jehovah. As modern people, we, we debate over how to pronounce that, but we don't have to worry about it too much because now we've got Jesus, right? Jesus says, I am the Yahweh of the Old Testament. So, so we know him now as Jesus, Jesus Christ, but in the Old Testament, God revealed himself in this personal way as the great I am. He revealed himself to Moses, and that's always capitalized L-O-R-D. So that's kind of a little trigger for you, you know, okay, this is that faithful, gracious, covenantal God who saved his people. That's who's being talked about here. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull, prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. Then they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Let me pray for us. God, we recognize that often we call to the powers of this world and there is no answer. There is no voice. We believe, Father, that you speak to us. We believe specifically you speak through your word. You speak through the good news of a Jesus who would live the perfect life, who would die a sacrificial death, and who would rise from the dead, certifying that he indeed is God. So we are asking you this morning to show up, Lord. We're asking you to be supernaturally present with us so that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see your goodness that we would see that you are God. We, we pray that you would speak to us. We ask you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So we see this incredible contest. It's this competition. Elijah, the true prophet, is like calling on the true God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to speak. And they've set it up to their, so that there are two sacrifices, right? So we've got this sacrificial system that we're used to, and, and not only do we have the sacrifices of the Old Testament where the Israelites were to make these sacrifices, but also the other false gods, they would have these kinds of sacrifices as well. Uh, but that sacrificial bull was not enough. You, you notice the prophets of Baal also began cutting themselves. Just a little side thing here. The false gods will never stop asking for sacrifices from you until your blood dry. The God of the Bible is the one who sacrifices himself for us. It is a huge difference. That is truly good news. Well, in this story, again, we're following Elijah. And what we've said throughout this Old Testament series is that as we look at Old Testament characters, we don't imitate everything they do, but we see their faith. 
And what we're going to see is that God is going to work with Elijah. He is this great, miraculous prophet of God, yet he still struggles like you and me. He's got this mountaintop experience we're seeing here where he has this contest of the gods. And we're going to see him descend into a valley of depression. And then we're going to see him learn to walk in faithfulness and community with others. So three three part outline as we follow the faith of Elijah. We've got to follow God just like Elijah up the mountaintops of success, down through the valleys of depression, and then on in missional community with others. All right? So we're going to learn from Elijah. Elijah was a a regular guy just like you and me. I love it. James actually says that, right? I love it because James has the audacity to say that Elijah was just a regular dude like you and me. And you're like, no, no, he wasn't. He was like this miracle worker, right? But here's the deal. No, he only worked miracles because he trusted in God. It, It was really God doing the miracles, right? Elijah was just a guy like you and me who struggled to have faith. And so we're going to learn how to follow God as we we watch Elijah. And the big question that Elijah set up to them is, who's the real God? And you got to decide if you're going to follow him or not. There's only one of these who is real. Who will you trust? Who will you follow? So the first point is we have to follow God up the mountaintops of success. Follow God up the mountaintops of success. We see this picking up the story in verses 30 through 40. We'll see then Elijah actually wins the contest, right? So this is like the spiritual Super Bowl where God sends fire down from heaven. It's funny because Elijah's all about fire, right? There's other stories we skipped over where there were soldiers trying to arrest him and he calls down fire from heaven and it eats him up. So anyway, crazy stories. Um, But starting in verse 30, it says, Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down, right? So Ahab and Jezebel, evil king, evil queen, they had Uh, kind of torn down the regular worship of Israel as they set up the false worship of Baal. So he's got to rebuild the altar even. So he rebuilds this altar. Verse 31, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. So he's trying to rebuild biblical worship here. Verse 32, with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he made a trench about the altar as great as it would contain two seahs of seed. The amount is not that important, but basically it's a drainage trench he, he builds around the altar, right? Because he's going to pour water over the sacrifice to make it more clear that this was supernatural. Because right now they're in the middle of a drought. Another part of the story we're skipping over, there was a drought. Everything was dry, tender. And so to make sure that everybody knew this wasn't just a wildfire, right? Because everything was so dry, he pours water and more water and it begins to fill up the trench. So we'll hear that in the story, verse 33. He put the wood in order. He cut the bull in pieces. He laid it on the wood. He said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. How many of you like to barbecue in the backyard? Now, how many of you, when you're grilling in the backyard, you pour like 100 gallons of water on it first? That doesn't go very well, right? Again, he's, he's trying to really focus everybody's attention that this is God at work here. This is not just uh, dumb luck of dry tinder catching on fire. Verse 36, and at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. 
These are bold prayers. Elijah is praying that God would work miraculously, that he would show up on this mountaintop. Look at verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Some serious fire, right? Everybody knew. There was no doubt any longer. Verse 39, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, I'm not very good at Hebrew. I rely a lot on commentaries and Bible software for my Hebrew. But when I was taking Hebrew classes, we actually studied this passage. And my Hebrew professor said, this is kind of an interesting chant that they're making as they are chanting, the Lord is God, Yahweh is God. Elijah's name is God, is Yahweh. And so have you ever been to a large crowd where they're chanting something over and over again? And it doesn't sound like normal speech. You're just kind of catching the main syllables. My professor was like, this, this would have sounded a lot like Elijah being chanted over and over again, right? This is like coinciding with his name. Again, Elijah is God is Yahweh. They were chanting Yahweh is God, right? So they're just repeating this over and over again. It would, have sound, would not have sounded exactly the same, but there would have been some key syllables that would have been echoing here. So Elijah would have been like, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, they're chanting my name. But again, he knows, he knows they're chanting the Lord. The Lord is God. Commentators also remark that this is interesting. Usually in these kinds of scenes in scripture, there's, there's a kind of covenant promise that then takes place where the people are like, and we will follow him. Now they don't, they don't say that, but they do obey Elijah, verse 40, and Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. They seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now, I'm just going to clarify here. We're not asking any of our Sunday school teachers or elders or deacons to slaughter the leaders of competing religions, right? Um, this, This is a genuine difference between Old Testament and New Testament. Now, we believe the God of the Old Testament is still righteous and just in everything he does. And so how do, we, how do we work that out? We just have to, we have to like admit stuff that we read in the Bible and like how that's difficult or how that, that bugs our heart or that seems weird or seems wrong even to us. So here's the deal. The Bible actually affirms that, the, that there is a rightful use of the power of the sword. This whole thing that Augustine worked out over time called just war theory. We see it picked up in Romans 13 in the New Testament where we're told that God gives the just use of the power of the sword, the power of life and death to governments, to soldiers and police. Many of you are soldiers, right? We would say that there's actually a right and good use of violence, of force to stop evil in the world and that that's appropriate. But that is not a power or a jurisdiction that's given to the church as the church. Here's the problem. It's confusing for a lot of you guys because you, you live in both jurisdictions, Right? So you go to work nine to five and you pick up the power of the sword. And I would say that Romans 13 affirms that, that you're doing God's will when lawfully using the power of the sword to push back evil in the world. But as we come as Christians to share the good news of Jesus, we don't, we don't do it with a gun. We don't do it with a sword, right? The, the weapons of our warfare are reiterated in Ephesians chapter six, where it says we fight the spiritual battle through prayer and through the proclamation of the goodness of Jesus, and through sacrificial service, through giving of ourselves 
to others. So it's just important that we separate those things out. If you want to talk more about that, I'd be glad to talk to you more about that. And there are all kinds of other issues that, that people wrestle with. Again, glad to talk with you about that. We, we don't hide any of these difficulties. When we read the text, we're like, yeah, there's some things that bug me here. And we want to kind of wrestle with those. And I want to encourage you to keep working through those issues. But here we see, basically, the big idea is that Elijah won, right? I mean, that's really the takeaway here. Yahweh is God. That's what they're chanting. His God is the true God, and Yahweh is God, and Elijah is the true prophet, and what he's speaking is true, and so they should obey him and follow him. And so what I think this teaches us is that it is right and good that we would pursue these kinds of uh, spiritual contests, that, that we would pray for God to show up in miraculous mountaintop experiences. I think we should pursue that. Now, the way in which we pursue these mountaintop experiences, I think we need to work on that a little bit. Because by definition, miracles are not normal, right? There are some Christians that teach that we should be experiencing miracles every day, right? And so we just kind of have to wrestle with that. Like, okay, what, so what's the deal? What's wrong with this? As I said, when you look back at scripture, you see that, that really the, the kind of supernatural things that we're not used to seeing, those happen primarily during the, the rule, the ministry of Moses, and Joshua, and then this later time period of Elijah and Elisha, and then this other time period of Jesus and his apostles. As best we can tell, when we look back at that, God was using that to certify their words so that they could collect the authoritative word of God into a book that we now have completed that we call the Bible. So we have his authoritative word here. So a lot of scholars would argue there's not the same necessity of that level of miracles any longer. Now, we don't want to go so far that we say, and therefore, God can't do miracles anymore, right? Like that would be, that's going too far. God can do whatever God wants to do because God is God, right? He's God. He can do whatever he wants to. So we should pray that God would move and we should pray for things like God to move in big supernatural ways. We should pray when our friends are sick, when we're sick, we should pray that God would heal us. He doesn't necessarily always say yes, right? Sometimes he says no or later, or I'm not going to heal you until heaven, but we should still pray and pursue those things. We should have open hearts and pray and expect God, God to do big, miraculous things and have mountaintop experiences. But what I want to kind of direct us to is there's specific miracles that the New Testament presses us to pray for. Two very specific supernatural things that God says. These are the supernatural mountaintop experiences I really want my church to pursue. Two things. I got a picture here of, of one of them or a representative picture. This was a baptism for a couple of years ago. I was baptizing someone. Here's the supernatural experience that baptism represents. It represents someone being born again. The water is not the new birth, right? The new birth is belief in your heart. When you believe that Jesus has died on the cross for your sins, that he rose from the dead and he's conquered sin and death, when you trust in him, you are born from above. Jesus says in John chapter 3 to this great teacher of Israel that knew the Bible upside down and backwards, that had memorized scripture, he's like, man, you're messed up. You're missing it. You got to be born supernaturally. It's not enough to have the Bible memorized. You have to have a supernatural birth from above. You have to have the Holy Spirit come and miraculously save you. So that's, that's the first miracle we should be praying for. Are you praying that your friends that don't know Jesus would know Jesus? That's the mountaintop experience that we should be praying for, that they would see and savor Jesus as their savior. That is supernatural. Let's not lose that as our primary pursuit. Is it okay to pray for other miraculous things? Yeah, pray for those all you want. But this is the primary thing that Jesus said when he left the earth. Hey, be about this. Make disciples, share 
the truth of who I am, the good news of the gospel with people. And I have to confess, man, sometimes I, I get cynical. I'm like, yeah, that person will never believe. It's easy, it's easy to give up on your friends that don't know Jesus. We're commanded to pray, to work, to share, and to pursue this great miracle, right? When we look at the great contest of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and how he poured out all the water on this dry wood until it was soaking wet and then God sent fire from heaven, we should be thinking, man, that's like what happens when someone comes to faith in Jesus. It's like fire falling from heaven. It is a miracle and we should pray for that and pursue that in the lives of our friends. Here's the second miracle. We should pray for the miracle of the transformation of our character. Galatians 5.22 says, the fruit of the Holy Spirit working supernaturally, mystically in our lives is we begin to be conformed to the image of Jesus. You and I, who are usually selfish jerks, we begin to love people. We begin to change. God wants to work that miracle in your life and in your friends' lives. Are you praying for that miracle? Are you working towards it? Are you taking steps? Are you reading scripture? Are you gathering with other Christians? Are you praying that God would send fire from heaven and that we would be supernaturally transformed? Often that character transformation is is the slow, long work, right? I used to say we're, we're dying a slow death called sanctification. He's making us saints. He's chipping away at our sin and he's conforming us more to the image of of Christ. So in Galatians 5:22 through 23 it's described this way, the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I was talking with our youth director Steve the other day and we were talking about how Sometimes there are fruits of the Spirit that we look at and we're like, well, yeah, I need to work on these other things and pray that God would help me manifest them in my life. But this one, I can't really do anything about. I just got to feel it, right? We were talking about how like joy is one of those specifically. It might be a different one for you, but we see this a lot in our friend's life. My wife and I have talked about this over the years. It's like, yeah, I can, I can pray and work on self-control, I can pray and work on kindness, but joy, yeah, that's just got to happen to me, right? I'd say, no, no, pray. Pray that God would manifest that in your life and then take steps, right? To read and obey scripture and see that God is worth celebrating, to begin to manifest these things. So again, for us, we thought maybe joy is one of those. I don't know what it is for you. It might be, it might be gentleness. You might be like, yeah, I, I can work on these other things, but gentleness, that, that might take 50 years. No, pray that, that fire would fall from heaven and God would give you real progress, in, in manifesting the fruit of his Holy Spirit supernaturally in your life. We, we take steps in faith. We, we read the Bible. We ask Christians to pray for us. We pray for ourselves. Uh, we create new routines. But ultimately, we're asking God to work in our hearts and manifest himself in our lives. So are you praying for these things? Are you asking for God to work? Are you following God in these mountaintop experiences of conversion to Christ, being born again, and then character transformation, manifesting the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Begin thinking about the people that God's put in your life and just think, okay, who, what do they need? Do they need? Do they need the first miracle or the second miracle? And begin praying for them. What do I need? Do you know Jesus? Do you know the truth of who he is? Begin praying that God would reveal himself to you, that you'd understand that it would fall into place, that these things would become clear. One of the suggestions some friends made, I'm, I'm not very good at this, uh, but this I think can be helpful is, is writing down 
the things that you're praying for. As you pray and pursue that God would work miraculously in your life, begin writing down those things that you're praying for, and then you'll be able to see how God has answered those prayers. So you can celebrate the mountaintop experience of like, wow, God is, God is here. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And worship him. Now here's the thing. Elijah won the contest. Elijah saw all of his uh, prayer journal things answered, right? He wins the spiritual Super Bowl. What happens next? He falls into utter depression. Now I'm skipping over a few verses that go back to the subplot about the rain and the drought and all that. We're going to skip to chapter 19, first one again. Go back and reread all the stories. I'm not trying to cover anything up. I'm just trying to kind of focus our time here. Um, Elijah was worn out after this, and he falls into a deep valley of depression. So we will watch Elijah, and we'll see how we can follow God through the valleys of depression. So chapter 19, verse 1. And I just want to kind of break it in. It's kind of a long section. It's verses 1 through 14. We see kind of two stages of God ministering to Elijah in his depression. One, he ministers to him in the physical manifestation of his depression. And then two, he begins to speak to him. He begins to speak scripturally. I think this roughly coincides with what we need to do with depression, right? When we're dealing with depression in our own life, it's often a combination of of multiple issues, right? You can generally say there's like physical and spiritual things going on. And so for me personally, I struggle with depression. I've never been medicated for depression, but what I found in my own life is when I go without sleep, I I become immediately depressed, right? I think the world is, is ending. And so I've noticed like there are physical things I can do to adjust that. But then there are also spiritual things where I can work on rejoicing in Jesus and hearing from the Lord, right? So there's kind of two sides of the house I think it's helpful to work on as you struggle with depression. I'll have more, uh, more things that we can try also as we read this story. But let's read the story. Chapter 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So sometimes the Bible has this kind of Yoda speak language here. (laughs) What she's saying is, I'm going to kill you. Okay, that's that's the summary. Elijah, you're dead. You're toast. Verse 3, then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So he's now in this other region. Uh, At this time, it was a divided kingdom. So Judah is the southern part. Israel, again, at this time, sometimes they mean the same thing, but at this time, Israel is the northern kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom. He left his servant there, right? Cutting his losses. He's streamlining. He's got his bug out bag. He's running for his life. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He's done. Have you ever been there? I know I've been there. And the crazy thing is, it's been just like Elijah. We're like, last week, God answered all my prayers. I saw him miraculously work through people. I saw him save people. I saw him grow people in their faith. But this week, Lord, just kill me. I'm done. Right? Have you ever been there? I just like, I'm done. I'm no better than my father's. Verse five, he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. 
And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and he ate and he drank. And then he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God, to a new place again, traveling again. And so here we see just a, a basic answer to depression is take a nap and eat a snack, okay? I mean, I'm, I'm deadly serious. Take a nap, eat a snack. When you do these things, you're going to be better rested and able to then hear the word of the Lord. So that then takes us to the next section where he begins to speak to him. I'll also add, you might need medical help, right? It's okay to seek medical help. We have doctors that can help you with these things, can help you get to a place of clarity where then you can think clearly and hear the word of the Lord. Uh, You might need a retreat. One of our uh, former staff members that helped with our church plant in Harker Heights, he works for Mighty Oaks. Mighty Oaks helps guys wrestle through PTSD. I know there's been a lot of PTSD stirred up from the chaos in Afghanistan. This is a fantastic ministry, week-long retreats that can help you rest and recover and hear from the Lord. recommend that heavily to you. It's a great, great ministry. A couple of our sister churches are involved with that, the guy at Christ Community Church, but also one of our friends at the Journey Church. Great ministry. There's also a ministry we run on Monday nights here called Celebrate Recovery. It helps you just systematically work through the hurts, habits, and hangups that you're wrestling with. These are next steps that you can take. There's a, a Christian counseling agency in Temple called Pathways. They have locations all around now. Pathways Counseling, recommend that to you as well. Take next steps to get help beyond the nap and the snack if you need help, and we'd love to talk to you about more of those options. But here's what God does with him. Now, after he's given him the, the naps and the snacks, verse 9 There he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? This is kind of like the kinds of questions that God was asking Adam and Eve, right? When Adam in his shame ran and hid from God, God says, where are you, Adam? This just shows that our God is a pursuing God. Just so you know, God always knows where you are. He wants you to be able to say it out loud, okay? He's going to pursue you, and he's going to say, where are you? What are you doing? He says, where are you? What are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 10, he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. This is the same kind of thing a lot of Christians are saying right now. As we see the, what many think is maybe the collapse of Western civilization. Okay, does that mean God's done? Maybe it is the collapse of Western civilization. But that doesn't mean you're the only one left. God is still at work across the world. And he's gonna teach Elijah this. He's gonna unfold this for him. He's like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you an object lesson here, Elijah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna preach the sovereignty of God and the good news of the gospel to you. So he said, I'm the only one. Everybody's gone. Verse 11, he said, go out, this is God, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. He's given him these big, miraculous displays. He's, he's jarring him, right? After the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, right? That seems to be, as you read the stories, Elijah's favorite language, fire. He came in the fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. 
still, small voice. God is speaking to him in quietness. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave and behold, there came a voice to him and he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? God asks him again. Verse 14, Elijah says, I've been very jealous for the Lord. He's like, did you not hear me the first time, God? I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They throw down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. So he speaks his complaint to God again. There's a pattern that we see again and again throughout scripture. I preach about this a lot, but it's, I think it's a lost art in the Christian life especially as more and more health and wealth teachings become pervasive in Christianity. You know, health and wealth is like, if you have enough faith or give enough money, everything will be rosy. But biblical Christianity includes this huge category of lament where we are called on to to share our lament and our grief with God. And sometimes he says, yes, I'll answer your prayer. Sometimes he says, wait a little while. Sometimes he says, no, that answer will be given to you in heaven. And so there's this great pattern. I actually have a handout on the back of the table. We pass these out at our partners meeting yesterday. We had a great time of just kind of corporate lament of just kind of sharing together sadnesses and difficulties we've gone through the last 18 months. It's been a crazy 18 months. Can we agree? It's been a crazy 18 months and Christians more and more need to practice the art of lament. That means we pray honestly before God. So here are four steps. Uh, Mark Vrogop in his book, uh, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy talks about this. Um, There are a lot of other books you can read on the subject as well, or you can just cheat and get the cliff notes I put on the back table for you. So here are the four stages of lament. Number one, turn. Number two, complain. Number three, ask. Number four, trust. So number one, turn. What does that mean? Turn to God. Actually take your junk to God. We have this bad habit as believers even, those who believe in Jesus say like, things aren't going the way I want them, so I'm just gonna run away from God and not talk to him about it. Bring your junk to God. Turn, turn to him. And then specifically, that second step is complain. You're like, no, that's not okay. Well, read the Bible. It's, it's there. Com- complain. Be blunt. Be clear in your language to God. Use words like why and how. Where are you, God? And that's the language of the Psalms. Then the third step is ask. Say, God, will you move in accordance with your character? God, I know you're gracious. God, I know you're just. I know this is who you are. Will you then move to answer this prayer? We ask him to pray. And the fourth step is trust. Trust. Know that God may say, I'm working on it. It's going to take a while. Or he may say, like he said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, no, we're going to leave that thorn in your flesh so that you learn to depend on my supernatural grace with this limp and this difficulty you're going through. We don't always know what he's doing, but we can trust him nonetheless. And that's the pattern we see. We can we can bring our complaints and our prayers to God and then trust him. As it, as it usually goes in the Psalms, it's like, yet I will praise you. Yet I know you're good. I know, God, that you're good. Even though I'm not sure if you're going to answer me this week or in eternity. And so we can give these prayers to God. Complaint is an important part. Lament is an important part of our spiritual life. Um, have you ever been in a place where everything feels turned upside down? You just feel like, I don't, I don't know how to get out of this mess. I, you just feel completely lost. That's when you need to pray and ask God. I have a funny example of this when, when Chris Webster and I went to visit some of our 
uh, field workers in Asia. We had a layover in Hong Kong. So we're like, all right, we'll go see the sites in Hong Kong. I don't know if you knew this, but a lot of people don't speak English in Hong Kong. (laughs) Not only do they not speak English, they use a completely different alphabet than we do. They use different numbers than we do, right? So we have our little phones and GPS and we're like, all right, uh, we've looked up on Yelp, one of the best dessert stands in Hong Kong. It says they've got great dessert custard at this place in Hong Kong. So we go to the taxi cab and we're like, hey, can you take us there? But it's the address uses different numbers and letters, right? He's like, I don't know what that is. So this taxi driver asks a young lady that he thought might speak English and she translated for him. She told him where to go and we're like, okay, I hope she told him the right place, right? He drives us downtown. He drops us off. He says things to us in Chinese. We're like, I guess he wants us to get out, right? I got a picture here of Chris in downtown Hong Kong. We were like, we have no idea where we are. We... <laughs> we, we can't communicate with anybody. They've, they've, it's crazy. They put all their signs in the wrong language. The only thing we could read, I don't know if you can see it, there was a circle K over his shoulder. You're like, that's one of our letters. We know that letter. Nothing else was in English though. Um, we were lost for a long time. He dropped us off like two blocks away from uh, the highest Yelp reviewed custard stand. We finally found it. The custard was really good. It was It was fantastic, but we had to wander and wander and keep asking for help and keep asking for help. Finally, we found someone who's able to translate and able to get us to where we were trying to go. Um, We often find ourselves spiritually in a place where our normal GPS just doesn't even work. Our normal way of figuring our way out of the lostness doesn't work. You're like, I'm used to being a little bit lost, but right now I feel very, very lost, right? What are we to do there? We're to trust that God is with us, even in those situations. We're to pray. We're to ask God for help. We're to slow down and say, God, you're my only way out of fear. And then God starts talking to Elijah, and he's like, hey, I've got plans. You're not actually the only one, Elijah. Look at verse 15. The Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. So first item of business is, hey, I'm going to install a new king in the neighboring nation. He's like, I'm at work in international affairs. You didn't even realize it, right? Elijah, you just thought I was all wrapped up with you, but I'm working all over the world, man. He's like, go anoint this new king in Syria. And then he's got other news. He says in verse 16, and then Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, right? He's like, I'm setting up a new king for Israel as well, for the northern kingdom. So you got to go anoint him as well. And then he says, and Elisha, right? There's Elijah, which means God is Yahweh. And then Elisha, his name means God saves. Which is kind of cool because Jesus' name put, puts both of those together. Yahweh saves. Okay, but anyway, that's a linguistic nerd thing. We don't have time for that. <laughs> Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. He's like, oh yeah, Elijah, you're not the only one there's going to be another dude. He's going to replace you, (laughs) right? You'll be dead and gone and other people will continue the ministry without you, Elijah. Sometimes we need to be told we're just not that important, right? And so he's reassured that God is at work. And again, it gets gets violent again here. Verse 17, he says, and the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
What's he saying again? It's kind of more Yoda speak. He's like, there's 7,000 other faithful. I believe he's talking about prophets of God. It's kind of hard to tell from the text. He might just mean there's only 7,000 people left that trust God. I think he's talking about leaders personally. But again, we're not sure. He's just saying there's a lot more going on than you realize. There are thousands, Elijah. You're not the only one. Do you believe that? And this is so hard for me. I fall into these positions where I think I'm the only one. If I don't do it, it's not going to get done, right? God says, no, you're not the only one. There's more that's going on that you don't even know about. And this, this awakening then brings us into the, to the final point. This is the last point. We have to follow God in missional community. We need community. We need friends. We need partners. We need to share the burden of what God has called us to do. But it needs to be missional community. The word community has been uh, commoditized. Is that a word? Can I say it? Commodified. That's the word. It's, it's been made like this consumer thing in our culture, right? We go to Starbucks for community. That's not really community. That's coffee and like nice decoration, right? Um, community are people that we can really lean on. So God's people, we're supposed to see ourselves as a family. We've been adopted, not because we're so great, but because of the grace of God and Jesus, we've been adopted into God's family. We're a part of a community. We're part of a family, but we're a family that's been given a job to do, right? And so Elijah had the job part, but he didn't have the community part. Some of you, you've got the community part, but you don't get the job part, right? It's missional community. It's not one or the other. If you're focused and you're on mission, that's great. God bless you. We want more of you at our church. Come on, join the mission. But don't think you're the only one like Elijah. You're also in a family. You need community. And those of you that want to be a part of a community, but you don't want to do anything, we just want to lovingly encourage you to grow up, right? (laughs) It's okay to be a baby. My babies never mowed the lawn, but my teenagers did, right? And so we want to bring those things together as the family of God. Some of you are babies. God bless you. Sit, learn, grow, begin to read the Bible, begin to obey Jesus. But then he wants you to be a part of the mission, right? His final marching orders for us were to be about making disciples, sharing this good news with other people, serving others in love, helping others discover Jesus. We want to do this together on mission, missional community. We want to combine those two things here at Grace Bible Church. So here's what it looks like for Elijah. Uh, chapter 19, verse 19. So, so he departed from there, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. So 12 yoke of oxen. We'll pause right there for a second. Uh, that means 12 yoke, so probably with the yoke, that's two oxen. So it's like 24 head of oxen, right? So what this means here, it's not, the math is not that important. He's just saying he's got a big operation. Elisha is really rich. He's having to leave something significant to begin working with Elijah. That's that's the significant thing here, right? He's really rich. He's leaving a big business. He's got, you know, big Ford trucks and tractors he's operating here. And he's having to leave all that behind to follow Elijah. So what happens? Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. So this is symbolic. This is basically like an ordination service. It's like the laying on of hands. This cloak comes up later in some of the crazy further stories of Elijah and Elisha. Um, So this is a mantle or a cloak. You could think about it as like his priestly robe or like his Jedi uniform, you know, or like his superhero cape. Uh, But this was his symbol of his authority as someone who spoke for God. 
And he's like, here you go. I'm putting it on your shoulders. What does that mean? That means I'm asking you to join the work with me. Verse 20, he left the oxen. He ran after Elijah. And he's like, hey, uh, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. Elijah said to him, well, go back again for what have I done to you? (laughs) He's like, yeah, go ahead. That's fine. We got plenty of time. It's okay. Verse 21, and he returned from following him. And he took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them, boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. What's it saying? They had a big party. They had a big barbecue, right? They burned the yokes. They cooked the oxen. They enjoyed some brisket. They had a big celebration. They had a big party. And then Elisha started working with Elijah. God provided a partner, a buddy in ministry, missional community. It's like you're not alone. Now, how do we, how do we apply this? Well, just recognize if we're called to something really significant, then it's important that we involve other people with us. And again, I, my old pastor used to say, when I point a finger at you, I'm pointing three back at myself, right? I understand. It is it's way harder to involve people in the work than to just do the work yourself, right? Can I get an amen? Um, anybody, you have kids here and you want to make a meal for them and you think, oh, I guess I could teach my kids to cook or I could make a good meal, right? It's like one or the other. <laughs> it's hard to do both. And that's kind of what we see with Elijah and Elisha. That's what we see when we're involving others in missional community with us, right? Like, man, I finally figured out how to be a decent Sunday school teacher. Now Dave is saying, I need to invite others and train them to be a Sunday school teacher with me. That's going to ruin my lesson. It probably will a few times, okay? It's okay. We have to like take a step back from efficiency and beauty and perfection and say, God also wants me to involve other people in the work. He wants me to do the ministry with others. I need others that I'm locking arms with. And the church should always be doing that. And here's the thing you're actually going to slow down on what you can produce. Like if I just did it myself, Dave, I could produce more, right? And then you'll just keep producing more and then you'll die. And the work will be done. There'll be no more work. But if you involve others in the work, then the work will keep going, right? So you, you really are slowing down a little bit when you involve others in the work, but it's worth it. This is, this is God's call for us. This is what he's asked us to do. He's, he's given us clear marching orders. We want to involve others in missional community. I grabbed a picture here of firemen putting out a fire together and they're, they're having to hold the hose, right? Like the work is pretty significant. Another argument I would make is maybe the job you've tackled is too small if you don't need any help. Uh, you like that? Hmm. <laughs> if you don't need the Holy Spirit, if you don't need other people, maybe you should try more, right? So anyway, this is a call to get involved in missional community. We, we say this in two different ways at Grace Bible Church, right? We say join a group. And what we're saying there is that you need to Walk with Jesus in community with other humans. You need to share your burdens with other people. Here's a discipline where this starts. This is just a basic discipline that most of you, I know you pretty well. This, this is the hump you need to get over. You need to actually say, hey, will you help me? Will you pray for me? Right? Just admit out loud that you need help. It's, it's a discipline. It's not easy, but it's a good step to take. Another way we say this is serving on a team. We say all the time, like, we've got this agenda for Grace Bible Church. We want to have so many Sunday school teachers and so many welcome team members and, you know, so many deacons and elders and small group leaders and all this stuff. And so, yes, honestly, we have an agenda. And so it's easy to hear that, like, they just want me to fill a slot. Yeah, but we want you to apprentice with Jesus. 
And he calls us to serve others. So we want to invite you into that process of like learning what it means to serve others in Jesus' name. So take these next steps. We'll, we'll stop here. I got to go to this mountaintop experience, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, to the mountains of Colorado in 1990. Um, and then the very next year, I had an opportunity to go back to the mountains of Colorado. I'd gotten involved with Young Life Ministry. Any of y'all heard of Young Life Ministry? It's a great ministry. Tell teens about Jesus. But they are very focused on telling kids about Jesus that don't know Jesus yet. And since I had met Jesus at this other mountaintop experience, my Young Life leader was like, the only reason we'll let you go to Camp Dave is if you bring some other friends that don't know Jesus. I was like, okay. So I got to go back and I brought some friends and we went to camp. But here was the really cool thing. After that other gorgeous mountaintop experience, we came back into the valley and our Young Life leader did this thing that I thought was so cool. And it really kind of helped form my mind on what it means to do ministry long-term. When we got back, what he did was he said, I want you to come to my office every weekday at 6 a.m. to all the kids that begin walking with Jesus. Kids, you know, 18-year-olds, whatever we were, semi-adults. He said, I want you all to come to my office every weekday, 6 a.m. I don't think at that point I'd ever seen 6 a.m. before. I can actually remember thinking, wow, sunrises are beautiful. This is cool. But we would go every day for like two or three weeks because he wanted us to form the habit of then walking with Jesus in the valley. But yeah, this is different than walking with Jesus in the mountaintop. And he began forming us in community with others, building that habit. I don't know where you are. You might be on the mountaintop. You might be in the valley of deepest depression. You might be just learning to walk with others in missional community. We want to help you take those next steps. And I want to remind you that we can all fall into what this great prophet fell into of thinking we're all alone. And I want to just leave you with words from Jesus. When Jesus left his disciples and they were tempted to think they were all alone, Jesus says, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I will come to you. He sent his comforter. He sent his spirit to help us to cry out, Abba, Father. He's not leaving you alone either. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you teach us what it means to trust you as we look at the lives of others who have trusted you. And we pray that you would help us to know and rely on your spirit, that you've not left us as orphans. We're not on our own, but you love us. You've adopted us. You've made us your children, and then you invite us into your work. Help us to walk with you by faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.